The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield, your number one news and talk station. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. I wonder if Adrian Gore, the chief executive of Discovery, is at all superstitious. We'll ask him that question in just a bit. Plus, uh, look at results from Discovery and Imperial today. Two good sets of results. Um, we also look at uh, the budget. and The budget happens tomorrow. Less than 24 hours to go before you find out. I'll, be, I'll know at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning just how bad it is, but I won't be able to tell anybody until two o'clock in the afternoon i'll be locked up in parliament and won't be able to communicate with anybody no matter what happens and uh it yeah it's going to be very hard to keep a secret for eight whole hours but we'll know um in the early hours of tomorrow morning plus uh, then be made public at two o'clock tomorrow afternoon uh lots of excitement of course budget 2018 and not good kind of excitement andy rice with heroes and zeros we'll talk about recycling and all of that is coming up on tonight's money show now lady pandor Oh, my goodness me. Lady Pandor on form today in Parliament saying that she called 330 days ago for lifestyle audits of public officials. President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa making that point today. It's time for lifestyle audits. What is a lifestyle audit? How does it happen? How does anybody spy on you without you knowing it? And how do they, uh, how do they decide whether or not you're living beyond your means? And if you are living beyond your means... How frightened should you be tonight? Should you be getting a good night's sleep tonight? Will somebody come and catch you out? All of that on The Money Show tonight. The Money Show on your number one news and talk station. Fast fact question. Let's see how good you are at this. Don't Google it. Okay, don't ruin it for yourself. If you're wrong, you're wrong. It's no big deal. No one's going to shout at you. How many budget speeches, how many February budget speeches, so not the medium-term budget policy statement, but how many February budget speeches did Ntlantla Nene deliver? Ntlantla Nene, former finance minister, how many budget speeches did he deliver? 31702-31567 on The Money Show. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. Adrian Gore, Chief Executive of Discovery, with strong results out of Discovery today. All of its core businesses firing on all cylinders, good growth around the world, new businesses coming to the fore. It's like a great big master plan coming together, Adrian Gore. Uh, <laughs> I haven't followed that way. Now, we set this ambition, Bruce, the 2018 ambition of, of being globally relevant, and we set very stringent targets across impact, across our businesses, across the foundation. And I'll tell you, when we did this kind of five years ago, it, it was not clear we'd get there. It's remarkable the power of a, how can I say, of a challenge to a bunch of really smart people. The truth is that these results show we are tracking very close to what we set out to do. So I'm not sure about a master plan, but it really is progress against uh, an ambition. Oh, okay, so it's goal setting then. I mean, does goal setting work everywhere? Would you recommend to President Cyril Ramaphosa that he sets goals and he goes into government departments and he says to um, teams of directors general, deputies director general, uh, carefully chosen ministers and deputies, people who are likely to have a five-year term in office, and say, here are your five-year goals, go. I would absolutely and totally recommend that. And I don't mean goals that are threats. I mean aspirational goals and what goals do is they evoke loss aversion. When you set a goal, you've got something to lose. And we know that that's one of the most powerful motivators. Um, it's much safer not having a goal, frankly. So in my experience in setting this process, having these goals and ambitions and stating them publicly has put us on the spot. It's a, it's a very healthy thing. What's your next goal then? What's the next target? Is it a 2023 goal? Well, you know, we've actually we've got a year left on this particular on this particular set of, of, of measures. I actually think we get pretty close. 
we are trying to just focus on trying to get there. Uh, it's, it's these things we've built discovery on a kind of ambitions from time to time. I'd like to, I think we're meeting to think about where we go to from here. There's no checkered flag to this. You know, it's just a process of improvement mm. of growth and vision. I mean, it's important. You, you run an internal target of growing at five percentage points above CPI. CPI relatively low now. You, you're growing at 15%. If you, are your targets too low or are you just having a really, really good year? You, you know, the, the, the first at CPR is 10, and the targets are set quite rationally. So we, we, we have emerging businesses, established businesses, we spend on new businesses and R&D, and we, in each of those categories, work out what's reasonable, and the sum of that gives us CPR plus 10. I think if a business can grow at inflation plus 10% every year, for you know, it's just mathematically, you become, it's, it's absolutely huge. So I think the target's quite a stretch. And to be fair, we achieved at this period. We haven't done it in every period. I mean, this is a very good period, but it's, it's not a slam dunk by any by any by any uh, shot. I mean, because a lot of what what you're earning is going back into new projects. Something like eight percent of your earnings are going into new projects, um, local and international focus. And I see something I hadn't seen before: Vitality Invest. What's that? Vitality. You know, in the UK, our businesses are called Vitality. So the health and life businesses are called Vitality Life. Vitality Health. We don't have we don't have the Discovery brand. We used one brand there. And Vitality Invest is the same as Discovery Invest. Okay. It's a long-term savings business. All right, and that's run out of our, out of your Prudential then? Uh, it's No, it's run out of... The, we are now separate from the Prudential. Okay. So it's run out of our, our life insurance business, but it's, it will be its own separate company over time. So it's a pretty big undertaking. And by the third quarter, will you be a Discovery Bank client? Uh, I certainly hope to be. I think we're on track <laughs> to achieve it. Um, I'm quite excited about it. I think one of the... One of the, the really good pieces of progress over the last year has been the bank build, which I think is going very well. So we've got a lot to do, but we're on track. Will you be client number one, or has client number one already been identified elsewhere? There's already a, 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 a group of our, our key staff that are in the bank that are banking with the bank in just a testing phase. So I, I'm going to have to stand in line, but I think it's close to number one as possible. But I think I've lost that already. Well, will you close all your other banking facilities? Just how much faith are you going to be putting on the stability and the ability of, of Barry Hoare and his team at Discovery Bank to make this work from day one? Um, I've got, I mean, I stand by a product. I'm, I'm hoping it's so good that everyone feels the same. Of course, I'm going to bank as much as I can with Discovery Bank. I mean, I, there, there may be products and services that we don't do initially, but absolutely everything that's done impossible, I will shift and change. I'm, complete and total believer in our teams. Um, Ping An, the Chinese insurer in which you've got a stake, um, their membership up 60% year on year, massive new business growth coming through. There are more people in China on vitality than anywhere else um, in the world. Are you seeing Ping An as your 10 cent yet? No, I think that's way too optimistic. I think that I think that Ping On Health is the Ping, the Ping On Group, of which not a shareholder, is, is probably the most powerful insurer in the world today. It's an absolutely remarkable behemoth. I mean, it's doing incredibly well. We own a share in Ping On Health, the health insurer that is really just getting traction in this nascent emerging private health insurance market. I mean, its growth is staggering, and we have great expectations. But I think to, to think that big would be, I think, not appropriate. Uh, its growth and its quality is has kind of shocked us positively, and we hope it continues. I mean, that growth is, is remarkable, as you say.
Do you have a superstitious bone in your body? I mean, are you at all concerned? You've got this magnificent new head office. I saw aerial photographs of it today with football pitches on the roof. There's this, this old legend of the curse of the new head office. Things are going so well, and then the company opens up a new head office, and it all starts going pear-shaped after that. Do you, do you hold any stead in that? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, it's, it's important to say, you know, we haven't upscaled. We're in, we're in five buildings in a messy kind of campus. If we're thinking of rebuilding to make it more efficient, what we decided to do is one big office with deep space, more efficient, same cost per square meter. So rationally, um, I think the move makes absolute sense at a productivity level, at a financial level. Um, but I, I certainly wouldn't like to test superstition. But I will tell you this, that our, our people are... I mean, there's nothing about this building that's, you know, we've arrived with hubris. I'm hoping that the message is we committed to invest in the country and we're about the future, you know. Um, and that's what I think our people believe. Um, and we're working hard at it. Can we expect something big on that one and a half billion rand that was identified by you and I think Brian Joffe working together with the CEO initiative uh, for, for small businesses? It's been very quiet for a very long time. We've been busy for about a year building the structures. We've gone through a number of fund managers with a fund-to-fund approach to investing the money. There's a number of bigger ideas that are at play. I think we're moving a bit slow, um, but I think we should expect something big. I think we have to deliver, and I think under this new leadership, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot to play for in a positive sense. We have to apply ourselves. Adrian Gore, Chief Executive of uh, Discovery. Thank you very much for joining us on The Money Show. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. This business report and budget update brought to you by Old Mutual. Do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. Get more on the budget speech on ewn.co.za. Uh, Dave Moore joins us. He is the chief investment strategist at Old Mutual Multi Managers. Um, are we all going to be poorer by this time tomorrow, Dave Moore? <laughs> um, I think, unfortunately, the answer is yes. Um, if you look at the options that are facing uh, the Minister of Finance or the budget. Uh, we don't know exactly what the Minister of Finance is going to be in the short to medium term. But if you look at the challenges, um, they're daunting. I mean, to try and um, install some confidence in, in government finances, I think, uh, you know, some tax increases are unavoidable. And as we know, the tax increases normally fall on the consumers. Uh, is it a problem for ratings agencies that Malusi Gigaba looks like he is the guy to be presenting the budget tomorrow? I think they would look past that. I mean, we're obviously in a period where if you look at the cabinet and the decision makers, we've seen one major change and we're expecting a lot. So I don't think um, the minister himself will make a big difference. I think the content of the budget will be the key issue. Um, I mean, does Malusi Gagaba have long in that department? Does he, uh, does he do any more than one budget, do you think? Um, uh, it's, it's difficult. To, to my mind, um, that's not the important thing. Is it? The important thing is that we want to see a budget put forward uh, that the government can implement um, and that would instill confidence from the rating agencies, but I think more importantly from investors in general because, I mean, rating agencies are important, but at the end of the day, it's the uh, investors in your local economy, people putting up new buildings, uh, implementing new systems, expanding their businesses. It's their confidence that you want to get. And as I said, you know, whether... 
Kikaba is there or not, I don't think that is the main point. Uh, well, here, here's the big balancing act, isn't it? I mean, we want confidence, we want consumer confidence, we want business confidence, and that is the balancing act that National Treasury has to structure, that balance between what people want and expect and believe and understand and need um, in, in an economy. And if we put taxes up too much, that undermines confidence as much as not putting them up enough. I think, yes, absolutely. We, we almost face sort of a situation that, um, if we put up taxes too much, uh, we could be in a situation where revenue does not increase at all. Um, and last year's budget, um, or the one that's playing out now, I think has sent a, a clear signal uh, as to those dangers. Because if you think of it, last year, you know, they implemented uh, a wide range of tax increases. And if we now look back at the expected growth in revenue, um, it has not materialized. Yes, the economy has been a little bit weaker and inflation has been a little bit lower, but that doesn't explain the big gap that we've had in revenue. So I think the, the key thing here is that, um, you know, we need to be effective in implementing some of those tax increases because to announce them and not get the extra revenue, um, it clearly shows that uh, there's something wrong in the economy and therefore you've got to be very dangerous uh, or very careful that you don't implement an overkill in terms of tax increases. And also the temptation then on the state to do direct taxes, so maybe more money. I mean, in Tantanene, when he did the budget, there was an extra rand a litre on petrol, for example. That was big. Um, you could do the VAT increase, which I know everybody's talking about, but um, everyone's been talking about a VAT increase for the last 15 years. But it's those direct taxes that are so much more efficient and easier to collect uh, and provide fewer opportunities for, for people to, to duck and die. If it's consumption... You consume, you pay. Absolutely. But even if you look at uh, VAT, I mean, and, and I agree, I, I think we've probably reached the point now, certainly with the, the pressure on uh, free education costs and all of those things, that we have to look at a VAT increase. Um, you know, even though it's politically unpopular, I think that's part of what Sir um, Ramaphosa talked about when he said there will be difficult decisions in this budget and, and we need to think of them. But um, if we look at the VAT uh, take for this year, you know, for the first three quarters of the year, we've only had an increase of 2.2% in, in the total VAT um, take for the year, whereas opposed to the budget, we were looking at, at over 7%. So even some of those direct tax increases, uh, we are struggling to collect those taxes. Uh, we can increase the, the fuel levy, and the fuel levy does seem to be a very effective way of doing it. But that's 5% of your total revenue, so you can increase till you're blue in the face, and it will not solve your, your budget problem. The one thing that uh, he warned about in the uh, previous budget, the previous minister, uh, Pravin Gordon, was that they might re- uh, take away or introduce uh, the VAT on fuel, uh, which could be a quite a big money spinner. And that would be a big extra cost. Dave Moore, thank you. Chief Investment Strategist, forgive me, Dave Moore, at Old Mutual Multinational, Multi-Managers. The Money Show. The Markets. Byron Lotter from Vestact. I saw your colleague Paul Teron tweeting madly about Discovery's results this morning. You guys are fanboys. Hi, Bruce. Yes, uh, I remember the last time I was on the show, you actually asked me, you know, what's the potential next NASPAs on our market? And I still stand by uh, the fact. Uh, well, not Although the fact. Adrian, Gore, Adrian Gore plays down, because I mean, I, I pushed Adrian Gore on that one and I said to him, does he see his 20% stake in Ping An Health and the extraordinary growth in China and the fact that there are more Vitality members now in China than anywhere else in any of their other operations? Is Ping An their 10 cent? And he was 
Uh, probably not. No, that's a bit too ambitious for well, me. I don't know if we'll ever see another uh, 10 cent. It's like asking who will mm. be the next Lionel Messi. So it's, <laughs> it's, that's a big question. But uh, they seem yeah. very positive about uh, the Chinese business. And, and uh, of course, you know, the Ping-On group, like he mentions, is a massive group. And they don't have a stake in that. They just have a JV with the Ping-On group trying to sell health insurance uh, to a very undertapped market. Um, but I think the, the the potential there is really with that uh, preventative healthcare model uh, that they've uh, managed to grow over the years. Um, I, I saw the other day uh, Jeff Bezos, Jamie Dimon, and Warren Buffett said they really need to fix the U.S. healthcare system. They've got well over a million employees under the three of them. And I thought, geez, you know, they should get in touch with Adrian Gore. He's got the solution at the palm of his hands. Just give them vitality. Give them vitality, get people to change their lifestyles, incentivize them to do so. Um, and uh, your liability decreases over time. Um, Imperial, really good results, and the share price falls 10%. It's a crazy old market. Yeah, it was a tough day, and I think Imperial uh, felt it um, just as hard as the other businesses that have been rallying on the back of uh, excitement around the South African economy. But it's quite nice to see a change in rhetoric. You know, whenever these companies uh, release results, they have their uh, two cents about uh, the current political climate and the current economy. And uh, this was one of the first ones that I saw that actually said, listen, we're pretty optimistic. Uh, We think there's going to be a lot of good change and positive change within South Africa. Um, And I saw Mark Lambert in an interview earlier, and he made a good point. He said, you know, a lot of people might have been holding back at uh, buying their new vehicle or, um, you know, making a a big business investment decision in South Africa. And after, you know, a bit of positive sentiment, uh, those decisions might be going the way of, you know, purchasing that vehicle. Obviously, Imperial are uh, uh, the biggest vehicle sellers in the the country. Yeah, I mean, it's not that, uh, just that. It's white goods and all sorts of other stuff as well. R&B did some interesting research last year in which they said households were sitting on extra cash um, just because people were blooming terrified as to the consequences of um, the uh, non-Cyril victory and what would happen to the economy. Um, Results from Angela Gold Ashanti, results from Billiton today, and a big fat blood nose for Steinhoff. This is the joint venture partner that Christo Visa said was speaking drivel the last time he came onto the Money Show. Um, And it was all about whether or not profits from this uh, joint venture company could be included in the Steinhoff results. And today a ruling in Holland saying, no, they can't be. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean... Steinhoff were reporting that 100% controlling interest. It turns out they only had 50%. Um, and this is why uh, that German fellow was incre- uh, incredibly upset with them. Uh, so we'll have to. Uh, so that's the first ruling going against them. And finally, some sort of clarity on what's going on in terms of that part of what everyone's worried about. But still nothing from PwC and uh, the big hole in that, uh, in, in, in that business in terms of the accounts. Yeah, um, they've got an AGM schedule, but they're also not promising that they're going to come up with any um, with any great big um, with any great big promises of results and things from previous years either. And so, yeah, companies, yeah, the companies kind of can take a lot of strain, and the market's been very, very cautious of this one. Uh, take a pick between Anglo Gold Ashanti and Billiton. I'll talk about Billiton. Um 
I see they're trying to sell that, or still trying to sell that Shell asset. I remember when they bought that uh, uh, five or six years ago, and they've written a huge amount of that off. And I think that just highlights the risks you take when you're investing in commodities businesses. Because even though um, throughout that period, you know, the the shale boom has continued and and production's been massive, they just really bought at the wrong price. Uh, And I'm talking about gas prices at the time when they made that acquisition. There's so many moving parts when you invest in, in a commodities business and, you know, with Billiton who are diversified, even the diversified guys uh, get hit pretty hard. But uh, increasing dividends, pretty cash generative. Um, and I think they made the right decision to consolidate that business and, and become more focused. Byron Lotter from Best Act this evening on The Money Show. JSE down quite sharply on the day ahead of tomorrow's budget. Asked Dave Moore from Old Mutual earlier. Is everyone going to be poorer by this time tomorrow? And he concurred, sadly. Bruce is on Twitter, at Bruce Business. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Well, earlier in our Fast Fact, I asked you, how many February budget speeches did Nsantla Nene deliver? I've got a three, I've got a two, I've got lots of ones. Did he only deliver one budget speech, one budget speech in February? I know he was there for only 18 months or thereabouts, and the answer is absolutely correct. He did deliver only one budget speech. And after Trevor Manuel's last budget speech in 2009, Pravin Gordon delivered how many? Think about it for a second. How many did Pravin Gordon present? There was a a term, there was a first term, so that would have been five. Did he present one or two in his second term? Yeah, two. So he did seven altogether, Pravin Gordon. We got very used to having Pravin Gordon at the, um, at, at, at the podium delivering the budget speech. Uh, tomorrow, at this stage, it looks like Malusi Gigabu will be presenting his first February budget speech. So that'll put him on par with Ntlantanene. Will he deliver another? Well, whatever happens, he will be more, better remembered in the history books than Deus van Rijn, who presented none. The Money Show on your number one news and talk station. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Imperial's had a good six months. Business in two distinct divisions. The one is logistics, all of those Imperial-branded trucks on the road. I even saw a cash-in-transit vehicle that had been rented from Imperial the other day. The other, of course, is the motor vehicle sales operation. They are the biggest sellers of motor cars in the South African economy. Mark Lamberti, Chief Executive of Imperial Holdings, on the line to us from Joburg. Um, You've been selling lots of businesses since 2014. I think the grand total so far is 42 businesses sold, 52 properties sold um, since 2014. Not that you're standing still, though. You've, you've bought about 10 in the process as well. It's this reshaping of what was quite a big and unwieldy, if I could be so rude as to suggest it, imperial business that you took over, Mark. Uh, yes, Bruce. Um, the real numbers are 45 uh, disposed of businesses, 52 properties, about 27 properties to go. Uh, and 19 companies bought. Um, it was clearly, um, you might call it, at the extreme M&A mania, but it was in order to get some focus into the business and get rid of businesses that were either um, unjustifiable from a strategic standpoint or underperforming or too small to give too much attention to. Uh, what emerged, of course, are two very clearly focused divisions, um, uh, which today have separate boards, separate management, uh, and um, this first half uh, was uh, some vindication of the work that we've done uh, over the last three years, uh, which we are hoping the full 2018 financial year to be, 
But this was just the start of it. When do you make a decision as to whether or not to formally split this business? You've split the operations of the business. They fall within Imperial. Part of one of the thoughts that you had last time I saw you was that you would split this into two distinct um, operations and unbundle one of them. Yes, uh, we are leaving that decision until late June, uh, early July. Um, There are external reasons, some of which have turned in our favor, namely the South African political situation. But, of course, one could always have a, a market correction or something like that which would dissuade us from uh, doing that uh, unbundling. Um, but, of course, the, there are internal considerations as well. The most important one being that we have both of these businesses properly capitalized uh, so that they go into the, the public uh, eye um, ready to uh, execute their strategies with decent balance sheets. Um, there's another very practical internal consideration, and that is, uh, having the full year of 2018 under our belts uh, before the listing. Uh, so um, there's some practical considerations as well. Uh, we, we seem to be having your South African businesses in pretty solid shape. I mean, you're making decent growth uh, around the world and uh, the various operations that you do run, but the South African parts of those operations seem to be in better shape than they have been for a while. Yes, we certainly had a much better year out of Imperial Logistics South Africa. Uh, the motor business, of course, has been exciting. Uh, we grew faster than the NOMS and national numbers. NOMS grew in 2018 at 5%. We grew at 7 so we gained some market share. Uh, it's been mainly at the bottom end, though, or the middle to bottom end, uh, where margins are a bit thinner, uh, because as the sole importers of Hyundai, Kia, and Renault, those vehicles are in the kind of sweet spot at the moment of what customers want. Uh, and the upper income, uh, the upper end uh, vehicles are a little bit under pressure but uh, a nice performance from our motor business as well. Uh, in addition to your day job, you've also taken on a role on the ESCOM board. How's that going? Um, I think it would be incorrect for me to comment <laughs> on anything at ESCOM, Bruce, other than to say that uh, I'm uh, very pleased with that board, uh, comfortable and uh, privileged to be on that board, uh, and very comfortable with the chairmanship of um, uh, Jabu Mabuza. Um, there's a lot of work to be done, and I was called to national service, and, and uh, it's a non-executive position, which I'll, I'll do as best as I can. I mean, did you have second thoughts at all, or was it an immediate reaction? Actually, this is my duty. You, I think, I think well, forgive me, I think you're close to 70. Um, you know, in your third chief executive role of a listed company, taking on Imperial because your wife basically needed you out the house. Um, right. uh, does, this keep, does this keep you doubly occupied? I mean, is it, did you pause for a moment before accepting? Um, not really. I, 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 there were certain things I needed to know about the people that were involved and who was making the call, but once I clarified those things, I was comfortable. Mm. And has it been illuminating, sitting on the board? Yes. I, I've, I, I served for a year on the telecom board many, many years ago and uh, suffered the frustrations of <laughs> uh, the, a lack of understanding between what the role of the, the government was as shareholder, what the role of the board was, and what the role of management was. I think that... Uh, um, through Jabu's uh, intervention and assistance, uh, everybody's very, very clear about the delineation of those three roles. And I think as long as everybody does their job within those roles, we'll be fine.
That's a very important job, Mark Lamberti, going to national service. Um, the chief executive of Imperial Holdings also serving as a non-executive director on the ESCOM board. I'm hoping to catch up with Jabu Mabuza on The Money Show tomorrow. Um, of course, he'll be wearing his business leadership hat. He's got lots of hats, says Jabu Mabuza, uh, literally. And he'll be wearing a business leadership hat. And uh, we've asked if he'll join us uh, to give us some sort of insight on the budget, which is going to be a bit of a scary document uh, when it comes out tomorrow. In a moment, we're going to be talking to a guy who who comes face-to-face with the seedy, sordid criminal underworld of South Africa on a regular basis. The, the white-collar criminal underworld. His name is Stephen Powell. He's a forensic investigator. Uh, today, we had Naledi Pandor remind us that 330 days ago, she had called for lifestyle audits of senior officials. Today, that call was a repeated, and this is interesting, by Soro Ramaphosa, the president of the country. You can expect it's going to happen. What is exactly is a lifestyle audit? And should you be quaking in your boots if you're living beyond your means. So what is a lifestyle audit? I mean, you understand the concept of audit. It's what KPMG is supposed to do and places like that. Um, so what is a lifestyle audit? It's something that now Lady Pandle was speaking about in Parliament today and saying 330 days ago she was calling for lifestyle audits and the President, Sir Ramaphosa, has been talking about lifestyle audits. Um, Stephen Powell is a forensic investigator at Edward Nathan Sonnenberg's and he, part of his job is to look at people's lifestyles, look at their incomes and then try and connect the two if there is a big gap. In simple terms for us ordinary folk what is a lifestyle audit the lifestyle audit is a simple test where we look at the assets of the individual and we measure it against the income stream the known income from the employer just to check and make sure that that lifestyle is commensurate with the income that the individual is paid so if you are living in a five million rand house and driving a range rover and uh, wear a cartier watch yet earn 750,000 rand a year, that may raise a flag of suspicion. It does, and in fact, that particular example applies to an individual working at one of our SOEs. I made made up the numbers, by the way, (laughs) so there there is a number like that, okay? Absolutely, Bruce, and the lady in question came to work in a brand-new black Land Rover. Uh, and, and, and you've got to wonder whether people are stupid um, because the, the, there is a, a provable amount of income um, and then suddenly you show off some wealth that is disproportionate to your income. Correct. And, and that's one of the problems for the fraudsters is if you're going to misappropriate money and you're going to steal on a large scale, it becomes an irresistible temptation to enjoy the proceeds of your crime. And people go and buy fancy cars that buy fancy houses, put kids in private schools, and we do the maths, and it just doesn't work out. As a sleuth, how do you do it, though? Because there's private information. Uh, somebody's salary is private information. Their expenditure, um, you, you can look at a tax return, perhaps. You could get access. You couldn't even get access in terms of the income tax. No, absolutely. To a tax return. So how do you do the research? There's a lot of public data around on each and every one of this. And in fact, Bruce, you'll remember a couple of years ago, I pulled a prank on you, and we did a quick profile, and I think we got... And you laughed at me, you went you poor poor sod and you then you took out your wallet and gave me some money thank you for that <laughs> no when we did that profile I, th- I think we produced about 14 pages of information just from public databases that was available about bruce whitfield and th- that, this is about 10 or 12 years ago um and a lot of it was out of date um, and I don't know if the systems have improved since then, but the point is you're able to go into people's credit records. You're able to go into in, into those sorts of resources. Um, you can go into the you can go into the deeds office and see Correct. how many properties are, are linked to people. Correct, but you did hit the nail on the head. There are confidential sources of information: bank statements, revenue information, 
telephone information, your mobile cell, cellular records, that is all confidential personal information. And the only way to get your hands on that is to register criminal complaints and get so, so, so the first step is to go to publicly available information. So we suspect uh, that person A is involved in, in dodgy activity. So we then do some, some deeds office searches and we see they've got three houses. Uh, publicly disclosed income is only 750 Yet they also bought a car last year and they went on holiday to Mauritius and to Dubai twice. Um, and it looks like somebody else paid for the trip. Um, there, may be an, uh, there may be an issue here. And that's when you then file the complaint so you can access then records behind the records. Correct. That's exactly right. So the first step is to access publicly available data. And you mentioned deeds office information, national traffic information, what vehicles we own is also public, what companies we register with, that is also public information. And then fortunately for corporates, the Credit Act allows for the accessing of credit reports when it's for the purpose of fraud prevention or fraud detection. So those are invaluable tools, but when there is a criminal investigation and there's a reasonable suspicion that criminal conduct has taken place, then you register the criminal complaint and we ask the authorities to issue 205 subpoenas. Uh, How complicated and and drawn out a process is it? Because I would assume there are quite a few people sitting in South Africa this evening going, I think we may have a problem here. Um, There there is a disconnect between what what we've told people we've got and what we do have. Bruce, it's actually something easy to implement and I'm particularly... Um, in, encouraged that government is considering this because it's something that should have been in place as a standard mechanism to monitor particularly civil servants. Civil servants particularly are going to come under scrutiny as the civil service looks to clean itself up and therefore once the civil service is clean and squeaky clean then they can start going after people in the private sector as well because then there are no more excuses. Stephen, thank you very much indeed. Stephen Powell is a forensic investigator. He spends his days at Edward and Nathan Sonnenberg's and in bad guys' offices. The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show on this Tuesday evening, the evening ahead of Budget 2018. It's going to be a a, a painful budget. It's going to be a budget that's going to hurt you where it hurts most, uh, and that is in your back pocket, in case you're wondering. Um, But isn't it nice to see the change of tone in the country? And it is just in a week how different South Africa feels, and people feeling a lot more optimistic and um, sort Ramaphosa's um, well-orchestrated morning walks and he's inviting communities to come along on the walk to have a chat uh, and he's, he's no doubt going to be utilising the intelligence that he gathers on these walks um, and and to, to help inform decision making. I mean, Jacob Zuma wouldn't go anywhere without you know, lots of blue lights and people with guns and all sorts of stuff. I'm not sure when he had a walk in public frankly um, without huge backup. No doubt Sir Ramaphosa's got great security around him and it's absolutely fine but boy oh boy it's just a change of access and tone and it's got to be a good thing from a brand South Africa point of view. Stop feeling as paranoid as South Africa has felt for quite some time. It is weird to see the photographs that are being tweeted by the presidency this evening. Uh, it's all smiles. Cabinet ministers, deputy cabinet ministers at Tain Hayes. It's a farewell function for Jacob Zuma who's showing each one of his teeth individually. So broad is his smile and Cyril Ramaphosa and he are chatting like old buddies. It's like these guys haven't screwed each other over a hundred times over the last six months and it's all's well in love and war oh i don't understand politics i really don't 702 and cape talk the money show
But I do understand a lousy advert when I see one. And Andy Rice, we're going to have a fight tonight, Andy Rice. We are going to, unfortunately, come to blows. There will be conflict, and this is why I've said stay on the phone. Stay on the phone, Andy Rice, because if you come into studio, it could get very messy indeed. <laughs> um, are you ready for conflict, Andy? Are you ready? I am, Bruce. And as you know, my hero for tonight is the extraordinary trailers and promos done by DSTV for that fabulous <laughs> money show. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly why I want to fight with you. Um, <laughs> um, no, you got I, two car ads this evening yeah. at opposite ends of the acceptability, at the rice acceptability spectrum of motor advertising. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting how categories go through highs and lows. And I would, I would say that until quite recently, the car category, the car advertising category, has gone through quite a lot of lows. And others do the same. I mean, I think also at the moment, liquor advertising, beer and spirits is particularly weak. But getting back to cars, um, it does seem to be a bit of a resurgence at the moment. One of our legion of listeners phoned this morning to say that uh, she thought that the new ads for the Kia Sportage, you've seen those ones perhaps with the Chabalala families and the Harrison families cramming into their Sportages, and um, uh, also the new VW Polo ad in which an intern unwittingly becomes an astronaut. Um, so I think there are some good ads around, but I'm going to go back a bit uh, to the middle of last year for an ad that I hadn't seen very much until I think it's just been reflighted again. And uh, this must be the one that you, for some strange reason, don't like. It's um, for Hyundai, and it's for the launch of the Hyundai Creta uh, SUV, and it's called Light the Way. And the whole uh, message is that it was uh, the campaign was launched on Women's Day, Women's International Day last year. And um, it's a very striking visual thing. I think you can't deny, Bruce, that it, it actually stands out in the, on the screen in, in, in comparison with many other equivalent commercials. And it has, from a very dark black start, it has a series of uh, headlights slowly coming on to light the, uh, the field that they're all parked on. I mean, this is, talk, talk me through it, Andy, because I need you to tell me what the picture is doing right now. This well, is for her. Not really, because the, this, this blackness is being slowly lit up by uh, what, what turns out to be headlamps from the, from the Hyundai Creta. Okay. Uh, eventually re- revealing, of course, a hero shot of the, of the vehicle in the foreground. Let's have a listen. Let's have a listen. Let's have yeah. a listen. Who wanted the title of mother, but also that of CEO. This is for her. The woman who held her head high and her placard even higher. Her payslip should reflect her worth and not her gender. This is for her. The woman who drives change in a world many consider to be driven by men. For all the women who light the way, we dedicate to the new Hyundai Creta. Yuck. I'm sorry, I just... (laughs) <laughs> I really, I, the, the accent sounds fake. I don't know if it's a South African ad or if it's a global ad done by a real American. Maybe, I've, I don't know what my bias is on this one, but I just, I, I just listen, to, it's corny. For women who like the way, driven, uh, oh my goodness me, it is so, it's beyond corny, Andy. Please well, explain, I, I the, we, from a professional a, perspective, why this is so. We agreed, sort of teeter on the on the precipice of, of, uh, of pompousness but this one for me given its objective which was to celebrate women mm-hmm. um, I think it's a it's a visually striking ad um, and I the the, the voiceover by um, a local TV personality Lebo Mashile mm. I think 
personally, I think it works well, very subjective, obviously, as we've seen. Um, but for me, um, I, I think it stands out from, from the rest. And the only thing that does slightly concern me is that the, um, there's, there's a difference, I think, between raising the issue of gender equality and targeting your vehicle at one particular gender. So in many categories, uh, brand owners and advertisers are hesitant to make it overtly a male or a female product because they generally want to have a crossover and to have uh, each gender contributing to sales. I think this is, this is probably a, a piece of advertising that was meant to open a conversation, a discussion about gender equality, but not necessarily to target women alone. But I think it actually ends up doing that. Well, I, I, just, I, I find it quite patronising, but then I'm a male. I, don't, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be judging the content um, that is not aimed at me. So, yeah, that, that, that will, can we disagree? We clearly have to, I think. <laughs> and then the other cool, the, the great ad this evening, the one that you've made a zero, sounds like this. So cheesy. <laughs> I love it. your bags. Jump in. Grab your friends and get moving. Look up. Look ahead. Look around you. There's a whole world out there to explore. Capture every moment in the new Mitsubishi ASX. Be who you want to be. Then that's a car advert. It puts a price on. You see through the roof. You see the car. Now, that's a proper car advert, Andy Rice. Bruce, what have we been doing this last week? <laughs> I think it's 30 seconds of cliches, every possible automotive cliche. It's a bit unfortunate that we can't show you the visuals because they are corny as hell. And basically that voiceover, when it says, you know, load up and, and, and get your friends, essentially what they're saying is, look, it takes some luggage. Look, it can also fit, fit, fit some people in. Um, it's got a sunroof so you can look up. It's got lights so you can look forward. <laughs> and the whole thing is just um, a very bad... Uh, audio-visual version of, a, of, a, of a, a car brochure. And I think that um, this really is the kind of advertising that emerges when you're preparing a campaign that will run right round the world and you're terrified that someone will take offence somewhere. So you make sure you have as bland a piece of communication as possible so no one takes offence. It's real lowest common denominator advertising, in my view. Well, you've taken offence, and so you're not... And you're not no one, Andy Rice. No, no, I mean, look, it's a dreadful advert, but it, <laughs> I preferred it to the hero ad. Forgive me. Heidi Edwards. Oh, my goodness me. Heidi Edwards is shouting at me. He says, hang on! I'm a woman, and I love my Creta. You can love the Creta. It sounds too much like Cretan anyway, but um, she loves her Creta. Um, but have you seen the ad, Heidi? Have you seen the ad? Oh, the ad. Andy likes the ad, and so therefore it must be a good ad. I just don't like it. <laughs> Andy Rice, Heroes and Zeros. Thank you very much, Andy Rice, for joining us this evening. I hope you come back next week, and so we can fight about another advert. I much prefer scrapping to unanimity. Exactly. Let's do the scrap. Uh, branding and advertising expert Andy Rice. His ad, uh, the Creta ad, um, Women's Day ad. Um, I don't like the tone of it. I don't like um, the structure of it. But then it's not aimed at me. So I'm not meant to like. Well, it would be nice to like it, but I'd, I, I just don't agree with Andy on that particular one. And then, um, the one I find cheap and che cheerful and corny as anything is the ad from the Mitsubishi, which I think is a bit of fun. Andy goes, it's common. You shall not tolerate it. So yes, that's what the world of advertising is all about. Differing opinions, of course. And that's all they are on The Money Show on a Tuesday night. Andy Rice, the expert, what he says goes, frankly. 
The Money Show. The Africa Business Report. The Africa Business Report brought to you by Export Credit Insurance Corporation, your export risk partner. Ronak Kapaldas is Director and Africa Analyst at Signal Risk. And it's been a very, very busy week in South Africa. What a week it has been. And it sets a really nice positive tone, I think, not only for us here in South Africa, but for, for certainly this, the sub-Sahara region of this continent. Yeah, it's been it's been an eventful week on the continent as well, Bruce. Um, we've had uh, you know the death of Morgan Shangarai in Zimbabwe. We've had a cabinet reshuffle in Zambia, in Kenya. The issue of parallel presidencies continues, and then the head of state resigned in Ethiopia. So lots to talk about today. Most certainly, but but South Africa's cabinet reshuffle is it a big Pan African story? Do people across the continent care um, that South Africa has, has got a new head of state and soon, hopefully, will have a, a, a new government and a, a a new outlook for for South Africa and for this region? Yeah, I think the the manner in which it was done garnered a lot of uh, respect across the continent. You know, just tracking some of the the Twitter commentary. Um, you know, the fact that institutions were respected, the military didn't get involved. All of these things were were positives and were were you know held up as a as a model for for other African democracies democracies to emulate. Because so many South, uh, so many African countries, of course, you've got leaders who overstay their welcomes. Um, we could argue that Jacob Zuma overstayed his welcome. Some people might say that. We certainly know that Robin Mugabe across our border overstayed his welcome. Uh, we've got the DRC and a couple of other countries, too, where, where leaders um, are, are pretty much entrenched. And the democracy in South Africa, robust as it is, um, has managed to see a political change and a long overdue and necessary political change. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the the fact that we've got these strong institutions is something that, that many countries on the continent don't have. And, and that's why, you know, you look at examples like the Democratic Republic of Congo, where elections were meant to be held in 2015, but you've had this kind of extend and pretend strategy. Um, we still don't know when, when elections are going to happen. You know, there's, we're the envy of, of many countries across the, the continent. Morgan Changarai's death in South Africa this week. His body was returned home to uh, a rapturous welcome. There really were extraordinary scenes uh, in Zimbabwe as, as Morgan Changarai was laid to rest this week. I mean, is it the end of an era? His, his MDC is in disarray, it would mm. seem. Um, there is a new breath of life being, being, being blown into, uh, into ZANU-PF. How does this change them? Yeah, so I think there there are a few things to discuss here. And the first thing I'd like to touch on is Morgan Shangarai's legacy. I mean, I think universally he's respected as for his bravery. He's been described as a doyen of democracy. Uh, even those who disagree with his politics have acknowledged the role that he's played in, in Zimbabwe. And I think he will go down as a Zimbabwean icon. Uh, I think it is, however, quite quite ironic, as you mentioned, that his adversaries have, have given him a send-off with honor and respect, but you know his internal party caused caused chaos at his funeral. So, I mean, that, that for me was quite ironic. But the, the broader question is, what does this mean for Zimbabwean politics? I remember we're going into an election this year for the first time in, in almost two decades without Robert Mugabe and without Morgan Shangarai. So it's definitely a new era. Uh, the succession issue that you touched on within the, the MDC, they're going to be considerably weakened by his absence, and they may even split. And, and you know, that's never good for, for democracy. Um, ZANU-PF were already on track for a strong victory, you know, buoyed by the uh, Munangagwa effect, um, still fresh, the, the, the ouster of Mugabe is still fresh in their minds. So, um, you know, I think um, it's definitely a, a loss for Zimbabwean democracy as well.
Yeah, I mean, and Mnangagwa has got to call that election sooner rather than later. So to capitalise, of course, on the sense of goodwill that seems to be pervading Zimbabwe at the moment. I mean, economically, any sort of green shoots in Zim or is that too early to call? Yeah, I mean, the, the rhetoric's been good so far. Um, you know, the proof will be in the pudding. Uh, will Zimbabwe, you know, open up to the international community? I think a lot of people want to see the IMF come in as a positive anchor. And a lot of people are also waiting for, for the election to be done and dusted. So cautious optimism, I think, at this stage. Um, but, you know, the, the election is going to be is going to be a key event. Tell me about uh, Zambia and the cabinet reshuffle there. They've had some fairly controversial ones over time. How, where does this one fit in? Yeah, Zambia kind of flew under under the radar a bit last week. We were preoccupied with Zuma and Changarai, um, but very eventful week in Zambia as well. I mean, we had the sacking of uh, a technocratic finance minister who had market confidence, Felix Mutati. Uh, and then the country announced plans to to restructure its bilateral debt with China as well. Uh, and that really shone the spotlight on its finances, um, particularly because the IMF have uh, have rejected their borrowing plan for the second time. Now, you know, despite all the polit- political shenanigans last year in Zambia with Hakainde Chilema's treason trials, the state of emergency, the third term debate, these were largely shrugged off by financial markets because of the prospect of, of an IMF package which would act as an anchor in the economy. Now, I think markets are finally losing losing patience uh, with 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 this, it doesn't look like the IMF uh, is going to happen anymore. Uh, and you know, consequently, Zambia's bonds have been the worst performing in the world, losing about six percent. The currency took a battering as well. It's so disappointing. It really is. And the parallel presidencies in Kenya, just how how is that playing out? So on on Friday morning, uh, there was this great article on on Twitter. Um, the headline was Kenya's two president uh, congratulate Cyril Ramaphosa on his on his inauguration. Uh, and, you know, it's it's comical, but at the same time, it's also dysfunctional. Um, and the broader question is that, is this an act of political theater or is it something more sinister? Now, you know, a lot of people will interpret this as Raila Odinga's last kind of bid for relevance. He's old. He's tried multiple times to become the president. Uh, he's never succeeded. But the the more important thing for me is the ham-fisted response that we've seen from, from President Kenyatta's government. Uh, increasingly authoritarian behavior, shutting down news channels, taking away opposition members' passports. Um, and, you know, there's already a legitimacy quandary because, because Odinga didn't participate in the, in the election. And this kind of behavior is, is not really helping matters. Uh, but, you know, the, the political saga is one thing, but the, the more kind of important aspect, I think, is, is the, the economic agenda. Because nothing happened for the better part of last year economically. Um, you know, you had this interest rate cap, which which choked private sector credit lending in the Kenyan market. Uh, and they continued to score a number of own goals. So to d- just today, the news broke that um, the IMF standby facility that everyone thought they had, um, that expired in June last year, but the central bank wasn't aware of it. <laughs> um, so, you know, now they, they're looking to go and, and issue another euro bond. But they're going to have to pay a premium because investors are pretty exasperated by, by the state of affairs in Kenya.
Yeah, and real concerns there. And, and what's also disappointing is Ethiopia, bastion of opportunity and hope and um, you know, connecting to the world with a, with a great airline and suddenly states of emergency playing themselves out in Ethiopia now. Yeah, not for the first time. Uh, in no. 2016, a state of emergency was declared as well. Um, and I think this is just a function of the of the pressure that we've seen build and accumulate in Ethiopia since since 2015. Um, I think with the with the resignation of the the prime minister, what was intriguing was was one the reason given to pave the way for political reform, and two the timing. It followed the release of of a number of political prisoners. Um, I think the fundamental issue in Ethiopia is very similar to what we're seeing in many countries across the world. It's one of identity of representation. The political power is is controlled by the the Tigrayans, or who comprise only seven percent of the population. Whereas the the protests uh, have been driven by the Oromia and Arama regions, where that's pretty much two thirds of the population. So how does how does Ethiopia's political class reconcile this? And I actually think Ethiopia's at at a bit of a T junction over here. Um, do they go the route of political openness, transparency? open it up to political freedoms and, and civic liberties, or do they take a hard line? So the re- rhetoric said one thing, and then we've got a state of emergency. So pretty confusing at the moment. But I think, you know, what what's quite clear is that the winds of change that we're seeing blowing through Africa in terms of liberation movements have have arrived in Ethiopia, and the, the status quo is uh, is probably not sustainable. Yep. Rona Kapoldis, uh, Director at Africa Analyst at Signal Risk. Thank you very much for coming through to studios for, uh, for us this evening. Uh, Ronak uh, joins us uh, regularly with the Africa Business Report and four big stories, uh, well, five big stories. South Africa's massive uh, democratic transition from the Zoom administration to a Zoom administration headed up uh, by Cyril Ramaphosa. I'm interested to see when he makes his move and puts his own stamp of authority on the cabinet that is aching to do it. And I see Prime Minister Gordon today has been talking about the fact that he's prepared to serve for a year in uh, in an administration if it wants him. Uh, and yeah, there was some speculation that we could have seen Pravin Gordon present the budget tomorrow. I don't think that would have been right. Um, I'm not sure that it's right that Maluski Gaba does it tomorrow either because there's no sort of sense of longevity or continuity there. But yeah, we'll watch the space. And the death of Morgan Shangarai, of course, uh, the cabinet reshuffle in Zambia sort of slipped under the radar, but we chatted about that. The parallel presidencies, which look like a laugh a minute uh, from the outside as Raila Odinga seeks to make uh, the, his his presence felt in Kenyan politics and a state of emergency, yet another one in Ethiopia, is deeply unsettling. The Money Show. The science of... The Money Show brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. It's the science of glass recycling, which is um, an industry which is fairly new in South Africa. And I don't know how much you recycle. You may want to tell us your recycling tales. Um, I think somebody who recycles is a bit like somebody who's got an MBA or somebody who invests in Bitcoin. Um, Give them a chance and they'll tell you about it. Um, But is it really worthwhile to do it? How much do you have to pay to do it? Do you get paid to recycle? I don't know know the stuff. Uh, Shabir Shatem is uh, the chief executive at the Glass Recycling Company. How much glass do we produce in South Africa, Shabir, every year? Hi, good evening, Bruce. We produce approximately just under a million tons of glass packaging in South Africa annually. Now, a million, I asked a glass and you said a million tons of glass packaging. That's everything, what, from jam jars to wine bottles, Coke bottles, everything. 
That's correct, because people think about glasses, you know, window panes, windshields. We look purely at glass packaging, which is food and beverage packaging. Uh, the biggest one, Consul? Yeah, they're the biggest glass packaging manufacturer in South Africa, and we also have Nampak Glass, who manufactures glass packaging. We have two glass packaging manufacturers. Okay, so they're the big guys. And um, when we look at them, we produce a million tons of the stuff every single year. How much of that then is recycled? Yes, of the million tons we produce, there's a significant amount of exports as well, in particular wines, because South Africa is a net exporter of wines. So approximately the glass that's available in South Africa is about 750,000 tons that is placed into the South African market annually. So of that, we recycle... 41.5%. 41.5%, so less than half of the glass is recycled. Is that because some of the glass is not able to be recycled or just because we're rubbish at recycling? Well, Bruce, there's a few issues one needs to consider. The first one being we have two types of glass packaging in South Africa. Your returnable glass bottles, such as your quart bottle, your 750ml beer bottle, some wine bottles and spirit bottles, as well as soft drinks, which are returnable bottles. And then you have your non-returnable bottle, which is your one-way packaging glass. And that's in the market because of consumer preference. So annually into the South African market, we produce just under a million tons. However, in excess of 3.2 million tons of new glass packet or product filled in glass packaging is placed into the South African market. Now, of that 3.2 million tons, in excess of 80% because of the returnable glass that comes back into the system to be refilled, and the glass that we recycle, more than 80% of all glass packaging placed into the market is prevented from entering our landfill. And which, is good, which, which is good news. I mean, so what's, what sort of tonnage goes into landfill then? Let's, let's simplify it down to its barest essence. Yeah, the kind of tonnage that goes into landfill is approximately uh, just under 400,000 tons, and we're working That's significantly on that. Isn't that a lot, though? I mean, proportionately, isn't that a huge proportion of the glass that we produce? Well, it's a big number, and really in South Africa, the concern is there's high apathy amongst the middle to higher income groups. And oh, no, look, no, there's absolutely no denial on that. Exactly. Um, talk about middle. Um, I, I put my hand up and admit guilt. <laughs> I'm completely useless at this stuff. And this is uh, your way, then, of convincing me that I should be doing a lot more um, for my environment and for my planet. Oh, certainly one has to do more. And we have significant or numerous advertising campaigns being on social media as well as getting to motivate people. But the glass recycling company has been in existence for just under 12 years. And what we have seen is changing mindsets takes a long time. Now, what we're really looking for, not only from glass, but the packaging industry as a whole, is to have mandatory separation at source. If you look at the European... Explain that. Now, mandatory separation is where you're forced, whether you're at home or whether you're in a business, to keep your recyclables in a separate bin or a separate bag, and that is collected separately, which then goes to a facility where the glass, the plastics, the metals are sorted, and then we call it, it goes into a clean material recovery facility, which is sorted, and then it goes to the different, material, to the different producers to manufacture new packaging. I mean, it's a lovely idea, but I just the moment you say forced recycling, I, I get images of the of the toll road system <laughs> around Gauteng, uh, where, where people just go no. Well, it's not and, f- and enough people go 
No. No. Um, and, and so once you force people to do something, surely there's a, a, a more carrot approach rather than a big stick. Yeah, there, is a, there, there could be a carrot approach, but what is done in Europe and which has worked su- successfully as well, what they have is mandatory or, or, or separation at source where there's good collection systems in place and people do, if you don't, for argument's sake, if you put your wheelie bin or your black bin out, what happens is if it's recyclables are mixed with wet waste, then what, what the municipality would do in the European Union is not pick up your bin or they would fine you for it. So those measures are the real only measures because if you look at recycling, especially amongst the upper income groups, it's more difficult than convincing them to buy something like insurance. It's worse than the grudge purchase because people don't sure. want to do that. So un- unless it's, I mean, the, we always use a carrot approach with significant communication strategies that we do. But to really get a step change or a significant increase in recycling, what we've seen the world over is uh, mandatory or enforced separation at source wh- where people are penalized, not financially, but their waste will not be collected. Or certain times, people are uh, certain people are fined in certain countries as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I did a TV show about eighteen months ago about these guys who push the trolleys around the streets of yes. Joburg, suburban suburban Joburg, and they go into the bins. And I just looked at this. I look at this industry, and it's a very valuable industry in terms of the recycling trade. Because I'm sure you get a huge tonnage from these guys who who spend their days picking their way, the rubbish pickers go through other people's rubbish. And it struck me that at the, the very least that suburban South Africa could do is separate out the waste to prevent these guys from having to delve into the filth that your house produces on a weekly basis. You could just put them into a plastic bag next to the bin and these guys could pick them up. It would be a, a way of continued job creation in a far more efficient way than happens at the moment. Exactly. That's what we at industry are also looking at, also to get the waste pickers more formalized where people would entrust the, the waste pickers that go into certain into suburbs and then they keep the recyclable separately. It makes it so much easier because it also gives the people who waste who are picking the waste some dignity back instead of sifting through their bins. And it really, it's, <laughs> it's a mindset change. And in South Africa, we're going through so many changes. And, you know, for one to get involved in, to, in, support, in promoting recycling or getting involved in recycling, it's so simple. We have lo- of over 4,000 glass banks throughout the country, but even put it out for your waste collector there to make it easier for the person who is doing that. It, this, you know, it really works well. I've been to Brazil to see how it works. And it's really the communities that support these waste pickers. And we need a mindset change in South Africa where we think about how we can help people who are going through a difficult time. What is it about us as a group of people in South Africa that makes us so bad at this? Well, sadly, it, you know, we've got people always say, we've looked at why it's too difficult. There's, I can't recycle easily. There's, I don't know what to do. It's also a lack of knowledge. And that's what we at the Glass Recycling Company is creating this constant awareness through different, using different media channels. But, you know, at the end of the day, let's call a spade a spade. And it boils down to apathy. And that's what, it all, that, that's what it's about. That is why initially I started with, we need to start looking at the stick approach because a carrot approach, sadly so, is not working amongst the middle to high income groups in South Africa. Graham in Somerset West, you'd like to have a word with Shabir? Yes, hi Bruce. Um, hi Shabir. Look, I, I really disagree with this notion of the South African public and middle class being apathetic. If I take myself for example, I would love to separate out um, glass, plastic, paper, 
But where do you put the stuff? We only get a black wheelie bin. There's no facility for doing that. And that my other thing that I really have a problem with is things like light bulbs with the mercury content, fluorescent tubes, and batteries. So I would happily separate that out. But where do I put it? And even in Cape Town, they have a, you know, these transparent plastic bags that they circulate now where you can put your yes. plastic and paper. And apparently that whole system is falling flat. It doesn't even get used. Apparently that stuff gets collected and just gets chucked in the landfill anyway. So my frustration is it's not about apathy. It's about there is no infrastructure to to provide for people to do that stuff short of going to find a glass disposal bin somewhere in town which invariably is so full and overflowing and bits of broken glass lying on the pavement. So I totally disagree with this idea of apathy. Um, okay, it seems to me absolutely nothing being done to to provide the facilities for people to be able to separate out the waste. Here's Graham, who's an impassioned um, recycler, somebody who wants to do it and wants to do the right thing, but feels like he's being thwarted at every turn. Graham, that's a, that's a very interesting question. I do take uh, cognizance of what you have said. At the end of the day, the collection of waste is the responsibility or municipalities. In terms of bylaws and laws in South Africa, once you put your waste onto your curb or your pavement, it is the property of the municipality. But what we as a packaging industry in South Africa is doing, including the glass recycling company, we have been requested by the Minister of Environmental Affairs to draw up an industry waste management plan. Now, what we will be doing as a packaging industry is to create separation at source systems where the municipalities will need, where we will guide and work together with municipalities to get their waste separated and there will be a proper collection system. And I empathize with you, Graeme, there isn't proper collection systems at this stage. As I mean, if you if you do want to recycle in many communities, it is a case of you pay somebody, a private sector individual, to come through and do the pickups for you. And um, really, it should be a municipal function, and you are contributing to the betterment of society. It shouldn't be an extra cost, should it? Well, exactly. That, that's It should be a municipal function. But what we as industry, because we have the expertise in terms of recycling, we, we, are, pl- we are working together with government to get... Uh, separation at source, to make separation at source a reality in South Africa. And that is really concerning because people want to recycle like Graham, who's a passionate recycler, but the facilities are not there. What we as a glass recycling company have done is we've placed, we have more than 4,000 glass banks, and it's very easy to find a glass bank where you can visit our website, tgrc.co.za. But nevertheless... Tango Golf Romeo Charlie.co.za. That's correct, Bruce. The Glass Recycling Company, TGRC. Quick one from Paul this evening in Rondebosch. Um, you've got an answer for Graham, Paul, to help alleviate yeah. his frustration. Yeah, good evening. The city of Cape Town has got numerous waste uh, disposal sites all, all around Cape Town in the suburbs where you can dump your various forms of refuse, your garden refuse, boulders, rubble, and they've got a whole recycling thing. So the guys will there at the drop-off facilities will sort the cardboard, the, the papers, the p- different grades of plastics and glass. So the, the facilities are provided by the city of Cape Town. It takes a little bit of effort, but they are provided by the city of Cape Town. Oh, and uh, would that cover Somerset West as well, Paul? Because that, I think, is Graham's problem. He's yes, in Somerset West. There, there is a drop-off facility in Somerset West. The best thing is go onto the city's website under, I think, uh, it's waste disposal or waste or something on the city's website. 
and they've got all the drop-off facilities pinpointed on the map. Lovely. Paul, thank you. In Rondebosch, that helps uh, immeasurably. Suzanne Brenner on Twitter this evening saying a pilot recycling project was started by Pick It Up in September 2009 at the Vartafal Depot for suburbs including Melville and Northcliffe. Paper and plastic and glass bags are, not glass bags, bags for glass, I suspect, are delivered and collected each week. Today it covers 490,000 households. Um, that's for, with a, it comes with a uh, tagging at Cleaner Joburg. More with Shabir Shatem, uh, the chief executive at the Glass Recycling Company. Let's learn about more about the Glass Recycling Company and how it operates and how it tries to alleviate the burden of glass going into landfills in a moment. The Money Show. The science of the science of glass recycling. So Shabir Jatem is the chief executive of the Glass Recycling Company. Are you a profit-driven organization? No, we're not a profit-driven organization whatsoever, Bruce. We're funded by our shareholders, the brand owners who purchase the glass from the glass manufacturers and they pay a fixed voluntary levy on an annual basis and the glass manufacturers in turn procure all the glass that is brought through by various sources, that's collected through various sources. In addition, the glass manufacturers have invested in colour processing plants where one doesn't need to source sort their glass into its three primary colours, uh, clear, flint, uh, sorry, flint, brown, as well as green glass. So our, we are not for profit. We are in the process of converting to a non-profit company in any case. Um, does that mean that, that recycling is actually a bit of a mugs game from a business perspective? It's a, it's, an ex, it's a loss leader. It's an expensive thing to do. Well, it all depends on the different uh, packaging substrate you're talking about. When we look at glass, essentially what is glass made out of? It's made out of sand. So it's a, it's a relatively cheap product to manufacture. So as a result of that, the value of glass is not very high when it's waste, but it has significant environmental benefits. And currently the glass manufacturers, Consul and NAMPAC, are paying a premium of approximately, because as a glass recycling company, we do not purchase glass. They pay a premium in the region of 10% for all waste glass that they, that they purchase before it becomes ready to go into the furnace to manufacture new glass packaging. Is there a financial incentive for me to recycle my glass? Or do I incur a cost in order to give the glass to you? Well, it all depends which way you do it. I mean, at the end of the day, there's, the world over, there's not really any financial incentive for the public or the middle to high income groups to recycle. But people at the lower end of the economic spectrum do recycle because it's a source of income where they sell it to drop-off centers or buyback centers, which we do support. I mean, you're welcome as well to take it to a buyback center, certainly. But it's the right thing to do in terms of good environmental practice. I mean, let's talk about the drought we're having in Cape Town, the floods we're having throughout the world. It's all about because of global warming. And recycling has a significant impact in reducing greenhouse gas emissions, which has... A huge I mean, imp- kilogram for kilogram, how much yes, less energy is used in the recycling process to, say, produce a brand new wine bottle as opposed to um, the, the process of producing a wine bottle from scratch? Well, for every 10% of recycled glass you use, you're saving at least 3% of energy. So we recycle in excess of 40%. The energy saving there is, 40, is 12%. But in addition to that, Bruce, it's also the significant decrease in your your carbon dioxide emissions, which is a huge problem the world over. So, I mean, how then do we, 
all of us improve the recycling rate. I mean, it, it's about lobbying municipalities and all that, that stuff takes considerably long time. We've got to go private on this if we're going to be serious about it. Well, that's an option to go private on it. And look at all the, we call the product responsibility organization as the glass recycling company. You have a different one, different organizations in the plastic sphere for the four different, uh, for the different types of plastics. You have it for cans or metals as well. And at the end of the day, these are purely industry driven initiatives. There's no funding from government. They purely, we are purely funded by, by our various stakeholders and South Africa's total recycling rate for all packaging is 15, 57%, which can compare with some of the best countries in the world. And this is completely funded by industry. So we have made significant strides in terms of that. But as South Africans, we all need to work together to increase that. I mean, you say it's funded by industry, but we just pay for it ultimately anyway because it gets pushed into the margin. So we're paying for this recycling to be done anyway as consumers of products out of glass or whatever the packaging might be. It's not an industry cost. It's a consumer cost. Um, um, We're paying for it anyway. So why don't we just get on board and do it? Well, at the end of the day, it's for everyone to get on board. Industry, we are doing as much as we can. That's why I said the next step change in the packaging industry is what we're looking for is separation at source. And like Graham, who was one of the callers earlier, he mentioned he doesn't know where to. So if you could leave it outside your curb or your pavement, then it's simple. And you need high participation rates to to service an area if you've got a participation rate of 10 or 20%. It does not make any economic sense. It's a complete loss leader for anyone who would do it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure, there's, there's the big stick approach that you can, uh, you can levy there as well. But also, uh, I would think that the Department of Environmental Affairs and, and other government departments could work together a lot more effectively in changing public mindsets in terms of the environmental consequences of failing to recycle. Yes, well, the department is doing uh, a significant, uh, significant work in terms of that. And Industry, we're working very closely, the packaging industry, the different product responsibility organizations for the different packaging substrates are working closely with government. And as I mentioned, we're in the process of preparing industry waste management plans on how we can increase the recycling rates even further in our country. My thanks uh, to my guest this evening, uh, Shabir Jatem. Thank you very much indeed. He's with the Glass Recycling Company, a loss leader, uh, funded by the industry in order to try and get greater levels of recycling in the, uh, in, the, in the South African environment. Lots of you do recycle. Monique Thompson says, I love recycling in my local glass bank. And that's nice to hear. There's no excuse, says Justine. If you care, you will find a way. I've been recycling for about 13 years. Um, lots of you with a considerable patience and resourcefulness and it does make the point that it is something that is not impossible to do should you apply your mind to it.